Today we will be in Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, and you know, there's this scene, and it's kind of a trope maybe sometimes in in television shows or movies, where uh, a group of people or someone goes into a restaurant, and they talk to the the person at the front, the hostess or the maitre d', you know, depending on how fine a restaurant it is, and they ask for a table, they don't have a reservation, and the person tells them, I'm sorry, we're all booked up for the evening, Uh, you'll have to come back at another time. And what typically proceeds in typical TV fashion, right, is then they say, well, we know the owner, and if you just tell the owner that we're here, um, he will surely find us a table. And it, from that point, it goes either one of two ways, right? Either they go time, find the owner and the owner says, yeah, they're my best friends. Get them a table. Uh, or the, they go to the owner and the owner's like, I don't know this, those people. Get them out of here. Throw them out, right? And maybe it's not finding a table. Maybe it's some special. Maybe it's a discount on the meal. Uh, they, they say that we know the owner, and so that should make some kind of difference uh, to the level of service that they should get select and special service uh, because of their knowing the owner. Um, as we come to our passage in Hosea today, we kind of confront this kind of issue uh, because the people claim many things in relationship to God, but they're wrong in every account. Today I want us to see that we can make claim to relational blessings with God while being sorely mistaken. We can make claim to relational blessings with God while being sorely mistaken. So let us read the scripture this morning. Uh, This is Hosea chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice me and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. And this 
is the word of the Lord. And we come to a new chapter in Hosea and to a new section, but let us not forget that the point of Hosea's ministry is unchanged. That the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were intractably set in their sins. Uh, They had turned from the covenant that they had with the Lord God. The Lord required fidelity to his covenant. He alone was to be worshipped. Right. This is the first of the Ten Commandments, after all. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Right. We could go to the next commandment where it says, You shall not make for yourself graven images. And why does God give these commands unto the people of Israel? Well, Exodus 20, verse 2 tells us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The relationship that the people shared with God was a special one because out of all the peoples on the earth, they alone are the one that God chose to be his people, chose to show them his glory, redeemed them out of slavery, right? They were in Egypt under bondage and God freed them from that bondage. And indeed they went out carrying gold and silver. They plundered the land as they went out and they were set up into the promised land. But remember that fast forward a number of years and we get to the time of Solomon. And after Solomon's death, because of his disobedience, his sin in his latter days, God said that the kingdom would be uh, broken. The kingdom would be split. And it was. And it was split into the northern uh, tribes and then Judah as the sole southern tribe. And one of the first acts of the new king of the northern tribes of Israel was to place idols for worship within the borders of his kingdom so they wouldn't go back to Jerusalem. Note the words of Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat in 1 Kings 12. We've gone here a bunch because it is the seminal point as to why we are where we are in the book of Hosea. Right? We, we can't understand the book of Hosea until we understand what had happened in 1 Kings 12. 1 Kings 12, 28 to 29. 1 Kings 12, 28 and 29. So the king, that is Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Listen to this. Listen to this. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. He sinfully, wrongfully, adulterously declares that the idols, these golden calves, are the ones that rescued the people out of Egypt. What's interesting is that this is not the first time that we hear this language in relation to going out of Egypt. If we go back to Mount Sinai, and we'll we'll look at this a little bit closer further on because it bears on our text today. But when we go to Mount Sinai, as Aaron is creating the golden calf, which he later tells Moses, you know, some gold fell in the fire and all of a sudden, no, boop, out, pop this golden calf. Right As he was crafting the golden calf, he said when it was done, here, Israel, is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right, And here we have Jeroboam saying the same thing, making the same sin mistake. And that sin has been perpetuated for generations now. 
the people continued down the dark path of idol worship. And so Hosea was called up, right? Hosea was called to go and to confront the people in their sin, to warn them of the judgment that was coming, and judgment is coming. Let's see first in our passage today in verses 1 and 2, are God and good, but not. So this is our pattern for today. We're going to see what the people claim and how the claim was false. So they first claim our God and good, but not. And as we come to our passage, we have to deal again with this issue that the book of Hosea has very difficult Hebrew language. And you see this reflected in the English translations. If you're reading along in a different translation, you may have noted that what I read out of the English Standard Version isn't probably always match up or directly align with what you see in in the translation you're reading. And that's just because the Hebrew really is that difficult that we don't know what to make of it in some instances. And so uh, translators do the, the best they can with the information that they have and make some judgment choices. And so too here, um, one commentator, for instance, edits this first verse to say, uh, set the trumpet to your lips is something like, uh, God is a young lion to the people. And we've seen that before back in chapter 5, uh, verse 14. Uh, trying to, um, so what they do is they amend the text there. They, they realize that maybe some letters or vowels have been misplaced in, in the copying down through the generations. Uh, and so they come to that uh, as trying to understand this text. But for most of our English translations, we probably have something like set the trumpet to your lips or put the horn to your mouth or some something of that sort, something of that ilk. Uh, and so we see that and then we see one like a vulture. The ESV uses the word vulture there. Um, other English translations tend to use eagle. So we have someone who's supposed to make a call. We have a vulture, and it's over the house of the Lord. And we're, we're probably meant to think of this as the temple. Uh, we could see this maybe as a reference to the land, but it seems most proper to think of it as a temple. So the, the picture, one, one commentator, Dwayne Garrett, suggests that the picture is this. A vulture, an eagle, is sitting at the, on top of the temple, looking down on the courtyard as the sacrifices are going on, and so what do you do to get rid of a vulture or an eagle? Uh, you take out your trumpets and you blast them. You make noise in the hopes to scare them off. All right, you get out your, your air horn and let it toot and hope for the best. And so why, does this, why is this picture used? Well, well we think of this this way, right? What happens in temple courtyard? Sacrifices, right? Bloody sacrifices. What is an eagle or a vulture... They're a carrion bird. They like bloody carcasses. And more than that, what do these birds represent? Either way, right, we're, we're looking at something that is unclean, right? Something that is an ill omen, maybe. Uh, think of it like a bunch of buzzards sitting down on, you know, on, on the temple, on the structure of the temple looking down. That would be an ill omen, wouldn't it? You'd be like, what? What's going on here? Something spooky's happening. Why are all these buzzards gathered? So you would want to shoot them away, though, right? So you blow the trumpets, you make noise. So Hosea, by poetic metaphor, is giving us something like this. There's an evil and unclean nation watching over the people of God. 
They're ready to swoop down and attack, devour. They are close. And so, what should the watchmen do? Make noise. Alert the people. Right? Gondor calls for aid. That kind of idea. And what should the people ultimately be alerted to? What should the watchmen point out? What, what is Hosea saying? Do you not notice your transgression? Look to your rebellion. Right? That, that's the end of verse 1. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Right? The people have broken faith with God. And as a result, they were going to suffer divine punishment. Which includes being carried off in exile. Right? An unclean nation coming swooping in and carrying them off. But the people are carried away in their delusions. Look at verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. And the idea of this cry is something like a prayer. So what are they praying? Well, we have it in parts. We have first my God, right? My God, again and again, we have to confront this issue. It's not that the people abandoned wholesale worship of Yahweh. Right of their God, of the God of Abraham and of Jacob and of Isaac. Sorry, I flipped the last names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not that they abandon worship of God. The reality is they've syncretized worship of God. They've taken worship of the Canaanite gods and the worship of the one true and living God and melded them together. They continue to identify themselves as heirs to the covenant with God. They continue to claim relational closeness with God and therefore blessings from God. So their prayer is my God. The second thing we see is we Israel. And the KJV fronts the word for Israel in this verse to say, right, to me they cry, so Israel cries to me, my God, we know you. But either way we take this, if we take Israel at the front or Israel in the middle here, what are we seeing? That they're identifying themselves as the people of Israel. right? They indicate that they are the people of God. God is their God and they are the people of God. And then they claim, lastly, right, we know you. We know you. They claim to know God. We talked about this idea at the very beginning, right? That they claim to know the owner of the restaurant. To say, well, we know God. He'll give us a table. He'll give us a discount on our meal. He'll do whatever he, we want him to. We have relational blessings because we know God. However, what do we know about each of these things so far in the book of Hosea? Hosea 1.9, Hosea 1.9, And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Hosea 4.1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. In each case, the words that they pray prove false. God isn't their God. Baal might be their God, right? The Canaanite fertility deities might be their God, but God is not their God. They're not really Israel either. They've made void that identity by virtue of their infidelity. And they don't really know God. 
right? They, they're completely ignorant of who God is. And how do we know this last part to be true? Because look at, again, the end of verse 1. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. If the people really knew who God was, they wouldn't transgress and rebel the covenant and law of God. They would know what he wants and they would seek what he wants. But it's proof that they don't know God because they have no fear of God. They have no reverence of God. They have no worship of God. Truly. They claim something, but their deeds prove otherwise. Right? To Titus, when Paul writes of the defiled and unbelieving in this manner, Titus 1.16, listen to what he says. I think this applies to the people in Hosea's day. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. And this should give each one of us pause. Because we may claim relational closeness with God. We may call out to him in prayer. We may bandy about the name of Jesus. But do we deny him by our works? Do we make void our confession of faith? Are we sorely mistaken as to our status in relation to God? Paul writes of his own self in 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So listen to his purpose here. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Right. So Paul says, I discipline my body. I practice self-control. I examine myself because he wants to run with purpose. Why? So that he's not disqualified after preaching to others. Right? So that at the end of the day, he's not disqualified. He's not outside the kingdom of God, even though he's been preaching all about the kingdom of God. He wants to see his Savior Jesus. He wants to hear from them those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We have seen this within the church time and again. How many there are who have disqualified themselves after preaching and teaching others. And again, this is something I tremble for my own sake because I know my sins and they're ever present before me. And I have to ask myself often, and as I have studied through the book of Hosea, I find myself every week asking myself this question. God, is this me? God, am I the man here? Am I the one who has failed to understand, failed to see, failed to repent, blind in my sins? Have I disqualified myself after preaching to others? And I don't say that just as vain, vain words. It's something that really concerns me and my own soul. And I think it should concern you as well. This should be your prayer. God, is this me? Am I like the people of Israel in Hosea's day? 
do I just claim Christianity on a demographic statement? And that's the extent of it. They claim God, but he's not their God. Their rebellion is their God. Their transgression is their God. Isaiah 4.13 tells us that they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Wake up. Put the trumpet to your lips. Alarm. Listen to the word of God. And and a small digression here, I think we sometimes get this idea that the prophets were angry, red-faced men. That they just, you know, that that's all they did. They got up and they started shouting down people. And I think that sometimes were true. I I think that sometimes was true that they did. They probably were angry, red-faced men at times. Because they were dealing with a people who were intractable, incorrigible, unwilling to change, not wanting to change, not seeing the need for change. And how it must have frustrated them. And how it must have frustrated God. And uh, one commentator even says of this passage, right? Hosea is poetry, by and large. And the poetry in this section is especially kind of broken and out of meter. And the suggestion is that it's, it's that way because God is frustrated. And we see the expression of God's frustration, his anger, in that he can't even keep to the poetry. Right? He can't even keep to the beat or the rhythm. But, but we sometimes get this idea that the prophets are angry, red-faced men. But I think they were also moved to weep. Because they wanted the people to change. I mean, look at Hosea's call in Hosea 6, right? Hosea 6, 1 through 3. We've already looked at this, but, but just think about this. What is the tone of Hosea when he's preaching this to the people? I don't think it's angry, red-faced. I think it's with tears in his eyes. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Just listen, people. Hear the warning. Repent. Turn back to God. He's wounded us, but he will bind us up. I think we can think of Jesus himself, right? Jesus sometimes acted in anger. By the way, there is coming a day when he will with fierceness, judge this world. But we also see him cry over Jerusalem, for instance. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. That's Matthew 23, 37. We consider the words of Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 9, when he says, I myself wish that I could be accursed if it just meant the salvation of my kindred in the flesh. The ones, by the way, who were persecuting Paul, who wanted him dead. And all this, they cry to God, but they're not really crying to God, right? They're not really praying to God. Verse 3 tells us Israel has spurned the good, right? Israel has cast off the good. They've rejected moral good. And how do we even know what good is? 
God is the definition of our is is the definition of good, right? He's our definition. He sets the standard of it. And so in one sense here we can see, right, it's not just that the Israelites have rejected moral good, but in so doing they've rejected God. Right? Again, they they show their rejection of God, their rebellion against him, because they reject the author of good. They reject good and the author of it. And what is the result? The enemy shall pursue him. And this word enemy here is is military enemy. It can mean military foe. So link all this section together, and what do we have? Disaster is coming. Exile is coming. Foreign captivity is coming. An enemy is coming, and the watchman should sound the alarm. The people should pray to God in earnestness. But they pray, but not to God. They rejected God. And more than that, God has rejected them. It's a terrifying place that the people are in. Let's continue next and see in verses 4 to 6, our kings and gods, but not. Our kings and gods, but not. The scripture says, God says, they make kings, they set up princes, but not through me. I knew it not. They set up kings, but not mine. The people of Israel were supposed to be God's people. And God was the one who was supposed to set up their leaders. And yet they've taken matters into their own hand. And one of the contexts to this that we can see and understand is, is especially in consideration of the brutal succession of kings in the northern kingdom. Right? There's a period of time where kings are installed, coronated, and then assassinated. So right, the people are setting up kings... But it's through assassination. Is that how God wants kings set up? I don't, I, I don't think so. That's not the, not the preference or the purpose. Does God remove kings? Yeah, absolutely. Does God remove leaders? Absolutely. The people want, these people want authority, power, and prestige, and they're vying for the throne without reference to God. They didn't see God in any of it. Now, ultimately, we know that God is the determinator of all these things. Romans 13 tells us there is no authority on earth that is not established by God. But it doesn't mean he's happy with it. He allows it, but it doesn't mean he's happy with it. Now, I think even our own day, do we pray for the people we elect to leadership? Do we ask God to give us wisdom on those who we choose to lead us? And we can talk about that within the church and outside the church, right? The first outside the church, right? When you go to the voting booth, do you pray? Do you ask God to to lead you to the person, to choose the person that he would want? Or do you look for other things first? Do you look for a D or an R next to their name and say, that's the one? Or do you use some other kind of preferential choice? Do you do what happened back in school when you had a multiple choice test you didn't know the answers to you just did a christmas tree right you just drew something out how about within the church right do we pray and ask god who he would have lead his people we make all sorts of pragmatistic uh, selections over our leaders over those who teach us over those who are involved in the administration of the church, we should seek the Lord's will. 
not pragmatic choices. We should look to the, what the Lord says about the leaders of his people. Right? Do we make choices that make sense to us, or do we pick people that align with the character that God has established to lead his people? And I dare say that part of the reason the American church is in the situation that it is in is because we have more often looked to matters of practicality rather than spirituality. Right? We say that this man, can he's a good orator. He's, he's charismatic. Let's, let's choose him. Not this man has a, a heart that seeks after God. And he has character. In Hosea's day, kings and princes install themselves in the land of Israel, and God doesn't approve of it. The people say, our king, but not in reality, right? They, they really aren't their king. God had nothing to do with it. And then in the last part of this verse, right, we have this issue with idols, with their silver and gold. They made idols for their own destruction. Continuing on in verse 5, I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. We've already discussed how in the early days of the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam the first set up the golden calves, but these are to their own destruction. Right? That's what the end of verse 4 says. It's to their own destruction. For their own destruction they have made these idols. Why? Because God has rejected. Because God has spurned their calves, even as Israel has spurned good. His anger burns, his wrath ferments, and he declares, how long, how long will they be incapable of innocence? God is losing patience with his people. And understand that God is long-suffering. He is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, 2 Peter 3.9, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But listen to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. God is patient. But patience has its end. God's mercy will have an end. God is merciful, but it has its limits. God's mercy is great. And what do we know of love? God is love. And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. But don't think that that means that anger will never burn over. Repent, friend. Turn back from your sins while there still is time. And brothers and sisters, tremble before God. He is forgiving and he will never cast you out from his presence. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are Christ forever. But don't think that he will ignore your sins either. Don't test the Lord your God. And what does God say of the gods that these people have put together? Uh, Verse 6, for it is from Israel. The craftsmen made it. It is not God. The people may have counted the calf as their God, but it's a man-made object with no divine power. It is not God. It is not their God. They may have made their kings and made their gods, but God repudiates them both. He does not know their king, and the thing they call a God is just that. It's a thing, 
not a god. So what will God do? The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And we come back to the time at the uh, at the bottom of Mount Sinai as Moses is up getting the commandments. And we come to this issue of the golden calf. What happens to that golden calf? Exodus 32, Exodus 32, verses 19 and 20. And as soon as he, that is Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountains. And let's just pause there and just say, I don't think this is Moses being impetuous. I think this is Moses showing what they have already done to the covenant. The covenant is broken. They hadn't even received it, in a sense, and it's already broken. Verse 20, He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. I think we're to go back and we're to look at this event from the Exodus. The people will be made to drink it. They'll be carried away. It'll be destroyed. These new calves, these idols, will be destroyed and the people judged. So, so far, what do we have? God, good, kings, and gods, but not. Let's see next our harvest and help, but not. Let our harvest and help, but not in verses 7 through 10. And we have this proverb as we start out, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They sow vanity, they reap judgment. Uh, and in these days, remember that farming is not a precision uh, practice. That is, they don't have machines that can precisely uh, plant seeds in perfect rows. So what do the farmers do? They get their bag of seed, they go out into the field, and they throw the seed out into the field. And where it lands, it lands. Right, So we have the parable of the sower in the Gospels. Right, Jesus gives us this picture of the farmer going out, sowing the seed, and some of it falls in good soil. Some of it falls in the path that's compacted and hard and can't grow anything. Some of it falls among the rocks. Some of it falls among the thorns. What's the point? Right, The seed is cast. The farmer doesn't go down, bend down, and put one seed in one hole. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have time for that. And the picture here, though, in the book of Hosea is they sow, we could say they sow in the wind. They go out on the windiest day possible and throw the seed into the air. And what's going to happen? It's carried off. It barely lands in their field. It lands everywhere else but in their field because it's carried by the wind. And then, not only that, but the farmer goes out and to reap what little was actually grown in the land. And when, when do they go out and reap it? They go out when there's a hurricane outside or tornadoes coming down the path and they're out there collecting their grain. What's going to happen? Every little bit that they do reap is going to be carried off by the wind. It's going to be destroyed. What's, what's the point here? The standing grain has no heads. The stalk has nothing on it. 
The stock is bare. And what do you do if you don't have a crop? You don't have flour. You're not making bread. Because there's no grain to make bread with. And not only that, God says, even if it were to yield, even if there was grain, strangers would devour it. So what's God saying here? They think they will have this great harvest. And understand that that's what they were doing when they worshipped the Canaanite gods, when they worshipped the Baal and Asherah. They were entreating the gods that they would have a good harvest. They were trying to appease Baal into giving them a good harvest. And what God says instead is all this they do, and it's going to be for naught. They won't have anything. And even what they do have, a foreign nation is going to come in and take from them. They will have nothing. They think they will have this great harvest, but not so says the Lord. And this is what God promised for their unfaithfulness. Go back to the law in the book of Deuteronomy 28. And I want to look at verse 38. Listen to this and see if God is not fulfilling his command, fulfilling what he has said, fulfilling the covenant. Because the covenant came not only with blessings, but with curses. If the people obeyed, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. Listen to the covenant curse, Deuteronomy 28, 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You're going to carry a lot of seed out. You're going to spend a lot of time in the field. And you will get nothing from it. The reality is that for these people, they had every opportunity to know what the Lord would do. If they were wise and read their scriptures, they would take their situation as the sign of what God was doing. God is bringing upon them the curses for their covenant unfaithfulness, but they don't know God. And they don't know his word. And we'll get to that in verse 12 of our passage. They thought that they could claim covenantal blessings while being unfaithful to the covenant. They thought that that because they used God's name as a magic token, that that would somehow uh, bless them. That God would be coerced to bless them. Understand that's the religion of the Canaanites, by the way. You do enough. You make enough sacrifice. You do the right magical incantation, and well, the God's going to have to do whatever you ask him to. The Canaanites believe they could coerce and cajole their gods, but God isn't like their gods. So what does Israel get for their unfaithfulness? Verse 8 tells us Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. And we get... These three images, uh, Isaiah uses kind of three images to describe what the people really are. Right? They thought they had harvest, they thought they had help, but not really. And the first image we have here is an empty cup, a useless vessel. Right? This is the first image that Hosea gives us. They seek authority and power on the national stage, but instead they are worthless. They are nothing, they are empty. They think they're something, but they're not. The second image we get is in verse 9. For they have 
gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. The second image is that they're like a wandering wild donkey all by itself. And it may not mean much to us, but donkeys are social creatures, social animals, and they travel in herds. There would be herds of wild donkeys, not a lone donkey. A lone donkey is a dead donkey, right? It has no protection. It has no protection from the many predators that would love a quick and easy meal. And this is what the people of Israel are. They're food for predators. And who are their predators? Assyria, Egypt, the other nations. And the only thing those nations are concerned with as it comes to the kingdom is how they can get a piece of it for themselves. The third image that they that we have here is meaningless tribute. Right? It says here at the end of verse 9, Ephraim has hired lovers, which by the way, this is this is an image of a man who goes out and hires a prostitute expecting love. He pays a prostitute to love him. Here's what a prostitute doesn't want from his or from her John love not going to give it right that's not what it's about it's meaningless tribute right they hire lovers they hire allies among the nations he's going to soon gather them up they offer tribute to the nations but it's not going to help them the only thing that the tribute has accomplished is that the king and princes shall soon arrive because of it. It's meaningless. They think the tribute to these foreign nations to make allies will save them. But instead, all it does is take the money and wealth that they have, give it to other people, and get nothing in return. They get nothing. They thought that it was their help, but not. Again and again, the Israelites frustrated their own desires. Their protection that is bought won't last because he will gather them up, gather them up. In one way that we could understand this is when he says, I will soon gather them up. Sometimes we get that after the exile when God says, I will gather my people up. And, and that's a positive thing. That's not the image we're given here. It's not a positive image here. It could be that God is talking about the foreign nations. God is going to gather the foreign nations up to bring them against his people. The second sense that we could get from this this word gather is that no matter where the kings or the princes or the people themselves may run to, God will gather them for punishment because you can't hide from the Holy One. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 12 tells us. Psalm 139. Verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I had to ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David, the psalmist here, gets it, right? He gets it. But the people after him in the northern tribes of Israel don't. 
because they may flee from God thinking they'll escape, but they never can. God will gather them. So, so far, everything we've seen in this chapter is that the people assume one thing, but it's not really that thing. And let's see this one last time in verses 11 through 14, our acceptable worship and sacrifices, but not our acceptable worship and sacrifices, but not. And we come to another passage of threes. Hosea likes working in threes. And we come to a passage of three ironies. Three ironies. And not like rain on your wedding day. Real irony. The first irony is about sin altars here. Sin altars. We see that in verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning they have become to him altars for sinning and what it what this verse intends what it probably means is something like this the people of israel have gone and established many altars to atone for their sins to offer sacrifices on to offer sin offerings on right so they made many altars but god says the only thing those many altars do is multiply their own sin. They need more altars to cover the sin that they are committing with their more altars. It's like this never-ending cycle, right? God had commanded the people to worship him in a specific way, not as they chose. I want to read a, a longer passage from Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 8. You're welcome to turn there. Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 8. To see, this is, this is God's command. Just so that we understand what God has promised and what God has purposed. Did, could the people have known that they shouldn't have multiplied their altars for sin offerings? Yes, they should have known that. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 8. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. We'll just pause there and say, we've already seen that in Hosea 4, right? They're worshiping under every, every green tree. They've taken up all that the Canaanites did and added their own. Continuing on, Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asher with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. So where was the place that had God had chosen to be worshipped at? The pe- did the people know that? Yes, <clears throat> Jerusalem. Where were the people supposed to make their sacrifices for sin? Jerusalem. What were they not supposed to do? 
whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And we could also add whatever they thought was most convenient in their own eyes. For surely it would have been inconvenient to travel down to Jerusalem every time they sinned. We've discussed this before, but it bears repeating. We are not to innovate our own methods and means of worshiping God. We worship him in the ways that he has established. Interpretive dance may be fun, but I've never seen a place in the scripture that says in the corporate gathering of worship, we should have a moment of interpretive dance. There are many things that people contrive as right worship of Jesus, but be not fooled into thinking that just because it takes place in the context of a church, that it is right, good, or holy. Examine the scriptures. Verse 12. We see the second irony. And it's that they regard the, the, the law of God as strange. Or as foreign. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Right? The people of Israel were to be identified by the covenant, by the laws of the covenant. The covenant came with rules and laws. And what God says here is that the people regarded the covenantal laws as a strange thing, as a foreign thing. They had been so enmeshed in the worship of false gods that they could not even recognize the words of their own God. God could have dropped leaflets from on high telling them of his law, but they would have just assumed that it was propaganda of a foreign nation. Moses told the people as they were ready to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 4.9, Deuteronomy 4.9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Moses said, says to them, right, take care, keep your soul, don't forget Make the word of God known to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren and so on. You get my point. But the people of Israel missed the point. And I just ask for your own sake, how about you? Can you tell the difference between a biblical idea and a cultural one? How about some phrases we sometimes hear in our culture? God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Pride goes before the fall. There's nothing new under the sun. Money is the root of all evil. Some of those are true and are in the scripture. Some of those are not found anywhere in the scripture. And some of them have been modified by what has been found in the scripture. Now, let me just say here to clarify that first one, that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Because if it were any other way, we would have no hope. What's my point in this? Brothers and sisters, we need to know our Bibles better. We need to know the scriptures. And you may have heard me say this before, or you may have heard someone else say it before, but chapter and verse. If you're about to make a proclamation that God says this, God does this, this is what we should do as a church, chapter and verse. Show in the scripture where you're getting that idea from. Because we often make statements about the scripture or about God that cannot actually be found within the Bible. 
And we need to hold one another accountable to this standard. You need to hold me to this standard. And right? I'm not just saying that, that, that about you. I'm saying that about myself. Because in every area of life, we need to examine ourselves in comparison to the Scripture. Because let it never be said of us that if we were given a thousand copies of the Scripture, that we would consider it like reading the Quran or reading the Bhagavad Gita. Right? Foreign words. May the words of the Scripture never be strange to us. But they were strange to the people of Israel. That's the second irony. And the third irony is meaningless sacrifices. And we see that in verse 13. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. The altars failed them. The word of God was strange to them. And now we find that the sacrifices they're trying to use to appease God and win his blessings are meaningless. They don't do what they want them to do. Instead of covering their sins, instead of atoning for their sins, they instead reveal them, right? The idea of a sacrifice is that it would cover your sin. But we see in verse 13, now he will remember their iniquity. So what we can think of it this way, what God is saying. The people go to their sacrifice. They make their sacrifice. They spill the blood of the animal. And that blood is supposed to atone for them. It's supposed to cover their sin. But instead, what, what happens is God sees the sacrifice. And instead he says, oh, yeah, I remember you're, you're a wicked person. Oh, I remember your iniquity now. Thanks for reminding me. Not that God needs reminders, but you get my point. God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1.14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God hates their religiosity because it's mere reminder to him how much they have turned from him. And as God rescued them from Egypt, they will return. Not literally, I don't think we're supposed to understand this literally, though some of them do end up in Egypt. But the point is this. They had once been rescued out of captivity, out of slavery, out of subjugation in a foreign land. They're going to return to captivity, to slavery, and to subjugation in a foreign land. This would be their punishment. This God would repay for their meaningless sacrifices. And then we come to verse 14, right? For Israel has forgotten his maker. They built palaces. And the palaces or the temples are probably fortified. Uh, so they're fortified residences. In the southern kingdom of Judah, they're not free of this sin either because they multiplied their fortified cities. The point is this. They've depended upon protection from the enemy in their fortifications. And they forget that as Psalm 127.1 tells us, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that they do these things, thinking that they will be safe because of them. For what will God do instead? Rain fire. Send four nations to come and siege their strongholds. And that reference to raining fire is probably supposed to make us think of 
two cities that were destroyed by fire, Sodom and Gomorrah. I bet when the people went to sleep that night, they thought, man, it's so great to be in a nice city with walls that protect us from invading bandits and rebels and all the rest. Isn't it great that we live here in this fortified city until the fire came down? The people of Jericho probably thought that they would be safe behind their walls until the trumpets rang. The people of Israel and Judah thought they would be safe in their fortifications, but to no avail. And understand this, in life, the only protection that we have is from the Lord. If we rely on anything else, we will find it wanting. If we trust in our government to protect us, uh, like fortified palaces of Israel did before the invading Assyrians, let us remember those fortified palaces fell. Fire came upon them. They were sieged. Our government can't protect us. Only God does. So let us look to him always. The people of Israel thought that they could lay claim to the blessings of God while being disobedient to him. They thought they had it all, but all they had was nothing. In each and every instance, Hosea here points out to the futility of their ways. They've sown the wind and they will reap in the whirlwind. All they have is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But a little bit more than vanity. Just a reminder to God to visit upon them the punishment for their iniquities. And you would do well to remember this. You would do well to pay attention to this message because you can lay claim to the relational blessings of God. You may use God's name as token. You may participate in practices of worship. But if you are unfaithful, if you are not wholeheartedly his, you will find yourself sorely mistaken. We go to that classic verse the, the classic passage, a terrifying passage in Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So friend, examine yourself. Test yourself. See if you are truly in the faith. If you call out to Jesus as Lord, does, he, does him being Lord in your life really make a difference? Because if it doesn't, you will be sorely mistaken when you stand before him. And what remains for you is to repent, to turn from your sins and to turn to God, to pray to him in faith, asking him to forgive your sins and to help you walk in holiness before him. Because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came to redeem a people for himself. He did this through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And in his glorious resurrection, he gave blessed hope to all who call upon his name. For everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. But Christ will not be fooled. Jesus knows the truth in your heart. Confess your sins to him. Plead for his grace, his unearned favor to change you. And some of you may have no pretensions of being one of God's people. You don't believe in Jesus, and I'm not going to be able to convince you otherwise. But know this too. There is coming a day when you will stand before your creator. You will stand before your maker. 
you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scriptures are clear on this matter. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But by then such confession will be too late. You will only know the unknowable anger of God. He is patient. He doesn't want you to perish. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. But do not think that his mercy is eternal. It ends. He will cut you off from the land of living and cast you into that place of outer darkness because you stand guilty before your creator and nothing you can do can appease him. And the sinking sense of guilt and shame you carry is proof enough of that. But there is one who has made peace possible. Such peace was bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Believe in him and live. Trust in him and receive relational blessings from God. Put your faith in Christ and find eternal life. This very day, pray to him, ask him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to understand these things, right? We have to examine ourselves in light of these things. What are we relying on? What basis do we use for the decisions we make within the church and outside of it? May it never be said of us, may it never be said of Redeeming Grace Fellowship that we were mistaken in our claiming the grace and love of God. May our words match our heart and deeds to the glory of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that that confession is true, that that prayer is true, that indeed you are our Father who is in heaven. Father, that the confession that we make of Christ is true. And oh, Father, we pray that you would please show us if it is not. Father, that you would have mercy upon us and send your spirit to remove the blindness, to unstop our ears, to change our heart, that we would know Christ truly. And Father, we pray that our lives may evidence that. That if we have believed in Christ, if we confess that, if we profess that truth, that Jesus is Lord, that it would be apparent in our lives. That what we think, say, and do would be different different than the world around us that is dead in their sins and trespasses. Father, have mercy upon us. God, let us not be fooled. Let us not be delusional. But let us understand and know the truth. The truth of your word. We are insufficient for these things, O Father. We confess. But we thank you for Christ Jesus in his perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. We thank you that in Christ, every promise that you have made is yes and amen. God, we thank you for your grace that you have shown unto us. Oh, Father, help us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.